welcome back to the Earn Up Podcast. Tonight we have um, Mr. Jerry Lester on the line, who is kind of the resident historian on the B-25 crew. Um, Jerry, thank you for being here tonight. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, where you grew up? Kind of give us the 30,000-foot overview of your life so far. Okay, we'll bring it down rather quickly, okay? Um, Raised in the Grand Rapids area, uh, attended uh, college and graduated from Western Michigan University as a music teacher. Taught for 13 years in the Grand Rapids area, then moved to the east side to become a high school administrator. So I spent most of my career uh, on the east side as a high school administrator. Um, Got involved uh, with the Yankee Air Museum after I retired in 1996. Uh, I was looking for something um, to do and was aware of the organization. So went and talked to them. And um, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, Wound up in different committees, um, wound up on the public relations committee of the Yankee Air Museum, and uh, then became their liaison uh, to the B-25, which really was very interested in because I've always liked the B-25, so that's how it got me uh, as one of the crew members, because uh, then I could report back to the public relations and the meetings and so forth. Also, different committees. I was um, one of the uh, public speakers from the Speaker Bureau and all those types of things. I've been with the museum for about 10 years um, and have spent uh, just wonderful hours with the B-25. So can you give people a little bit of background of what your job entails, like kind of the stuff that you do? Um <clears throat> I'm not a pilot. There are several of us that are just crew members that are involved in taking care of the airplane, preparing it and prepping it. Uh, my role really winds up, uh, well, several years ago, I wound up actually uh, scheduling different events for the B-25 because the B-25 was not really being utilized uh, as much um, as it has been in the past now. Uh, so we decided to uh, target smaller airports uh, within an hour, hour and a half radius, um, and do air shows, events, uh, anything we could do to get the B-25 out to uh, sell rides. When we go to the events, um, one of the things that uh, I do is I work with the crowd, uh, get the background and history of the airplane, because it is a natural draw the minute you land. Uh, mm-hmm. As they say, you build it, they'll come. Well, if you land, they'll come. And especially if you circle the uh, towns a couple of times, and then uh, they'll follow you to the airport. Then uh, to promote selling the rides, um, of course, the goal is to raise the revenue for the museum. Uh, As you're aware, we're all volunteers. Um, Nobody gets paid. Pilots don't get paid. We do this because we have the passion and passion for the B-25. Exactly. So can you tell me... What kind of got you interested in your plans? Was an interest before you started working at the Air Museum, or did you just sort of see it? Well, I actually <clears throat> rode on the B-17 in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, had gone down there uh, with my brother and our wives to get an autograph from a P-61 pilot. Um, I've always had the love and fascination for the uh, Black Widow and mm-hmm. found out that they were going to have uh, some of the pilots there at the air show. 
So we drove 14 hours down there to get an autograph and uh, pay $10 and got a picture of him in his airplane and had a chance to meet him and found out that he actually lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So uh, we struck up quite a friendship. Uh, so I've always had an interest in aircraft. I had two uncles that served in World War II. Uh, one was a Hellcat uh, fighter pilot and the other uh, worked on P-38s in the Pacific. So there's been a natural draw. Um, unfortunately, in the younger years in high school and so forth, history really didn't mean too much to me. But uh, as you get older, and uh, I, I'm really fascinated about uh, the history, especially in World War II. My dad, by the, my dad, by the way, um, during World War II was kept back to uh, work in the factory and he, uh, they built uh, tail wheels for P-47s. Interesting. So can you, let's kind of transition here to talking um, specifically about the B-25. So can you kind of give us, um, I don't know, an overview of the airplane before we delve into the kind of the more history of it? Yeah, uh, the B-25, as I found out, um, is an actual World War II veteran aircraft documented and uh, was very interested in the history of it. Um, so there was some information that the museum had gathered over the years. Unfortunately, during the transition, uh, we were really orphaned for several years. We had to move around a lot. Uh, as far as the offices and storage and things got misplaced, um, didn't know where things were, documents got lost. So I asked for permission to try to find all the documents we could for the, uh, at that time, the Yankee Warrior RB-25. And uh, they allowed me to do that. So I started going through files and boxes and trying to organize all of the uh, items that I could find and then identify the items that were missing. And after doing that, then I asked permission to, uh, if it would be all right if I did some research on the B-25 to try to um, create a documented file uh, so the museum has that. Um, did find out a lot uh, about the B-25. Um, it is amazing the information that is out there. It is amazing the information that had already been collected, um, but for some reason it just wasn't a priority. And um, I, I think that it just boiled down to is that in actions like this, you, you really have to have somebody who wants to dedicate time uh, and they have a passion for it. So there was a reason to do it. I was doing it for the museum and not for me. And uh, so it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And uh, it has led me to many wonderful experiences. Of course, finding out the history of the uh, 25 and that she was with the 57th Bomb Wing, uh, which was an MTO in the Mediterranean Theater of Operation. Uh, contacted those people. And um, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> they were also down to Reading. The time I went down to fly on the uh, B-17, knew nothing about the plane. And um, so over the years, uh, we've cultivated that. We had returned to Reading many years. Um, we've actually had reunions down there with the members of the 57th Bomb Wing, um, had actually had um, members uh, of the bomb squad, the 489th, had a chance to meet them. Um, there, are, there were and are none, let me start over with that one. There aren't any 
living crew members of the 25. Mm -hmm. The people that I met with the um, 57th Bomb Wing, the people that associated with the 489th are relatives of the people who served with the 489th. But it still was nice to spend time with the families. They, they created documents, sent me documents, information they had on the plane. Uh, so that started this whole history ball rolling. And um, as a matter of fact, um, I was invited by them to uh, fly out to Phoenix, Arizona for their national reunion and do a presentation on our B-25. Um, it became so popular, uh, mainly because it is one of theirs. That, that They can identify it when they see the big 9C on the tail. That's exactly what it is. Um, so they know the history um, of the squadrons. They know um, that we have the plane. We had many of the members of the 57th Bomb Wing fly aboard our plane. Um, at the reunions, we actually hosted the national reunion at our air show a couple of years ago and uh, treated them like rock stars. And they had their own tent and we had private charter buses and uh, Bill Clark did a flyover for them and their names were read over the PA. And um, it was just very heartwarming to see their reaction. Uh, they'd never been treated like that before there were a lot of tears and uh, it just was a joyful day to uh, finally have them recognized. So in what form um, was the most of your research conducted in documents, interviews with family members? Um, <clears throat> the best part of course is talking to the family members. Um, as you're aware, research is very time consuming and it's kind of impersonal except when you run across something that you didn't know or didn't have copies of, it kind of makes the many hours worth it. Uh, but yet to sit down and actually talk, uh, either by phone or face-to-face -face with family members. Um, I have talked to um, members, actual veterans of the 489 that um, knew our crew chief as we're there, and uh, some other um, information at that time that they could relay that there, there, are, there is no documentation of what they were saying. It was just part of what their uh, actions and skills and so forth were at the time in the Mediterranean. So how do you go about verifying those? Um, <clears throat> you mean the documents? Or not so much the documents as what, because I know some of the stuff I've done, one person says one thing and then another <laughs> person says another thing. And then you could kind of have to mix them together, you know, and then look at other stuff. So how, how did you go about that? Uh, that's really a great question because it's true. Um, I found a lot of information that the museum was promoting about our plane that was not correct. Hmm. Um, one of them is, and I'm sure it was part of a selling point to try to get rides and so forth when they, people would talk to uh, people at the air show would take rides and, you know, they would show them where there was flak damage and all that type of stuff on the plane. Uh, well, that's easy to say, but when I got involved with the research, one of my goals were if we could not identify it by documents, actual official documents or photos, then we have no business saying this or that. Um, right. The, the comment about the, uh, the, the damage, flight damage and so forth. Uh, the reason we know that's not true is because 
we now have copies of all eight of the missions. And on the form, uh, after the mission, they have to report any aircraft damage. So when you look at that form under aircraft damage, what's typed in there? It says none. Uh -huh. Well, then there wasn't any damage. Uh, right. You know, if they had a hole in the wing, they had to put, you know, starboard whatever, uh, or damage or something. But uh, there's nothing listed. And I did see other aircraft that flew those missions to see their report, and some of those were damaged, whether it was in engine damage or whatever. So to try to find the truth is, it can be hard, but again, the documentation has to be there. Now, if somebody says something, then I write it down, but I don't necessarily believe it yet until I talk to someone else who can tell me the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, totally independent from what the other person uh, said. And so after a while, if you keep hearing the same thing, then it must be true. Um, and there's just so much false information. And I remember seeing a, a YouTube video of uh, our B-25 at some air show somewhere. And it happened to be uh, one radio person was there and he walked up with a microphone and they're filming. And they asked this uh, crew member of the B-25 where the plane was built. And he said, Texas. Well, yeah, now, that's not right. Go. That's yeah. not right. Like, holy smokes, wait a minute. And I'm sitting there going, well, why would he say Texas? I mean, yeah. that was one of the easiest things to find out where it was built uh, because it was a D model. And uh, so therefore we knew it wasn't Texas. It was built in Kansas City. Uh, C's and D's are identical. C's were made in California. D's were made in uh, Kansas City. Right, and there's documentation like from the actual factory that you can look at with the serial number and stuff like that. Yeah, that and that's one of the advantages each time. Uh, and being a total novice, a novice, I learned a lot of things, uh, and always start with the tail number, and because they don't issue another tail number to any other that same tail number to any other plane. Right, it's uh, a unique tail number. That is correct. Now, the squadron number, it was interesting, and this happened at Reading. Um, the big 9C, which tells us it was the 489th, and the C is the squadron code. And uh, Ezra Vera was the crew chief. And doing the uh, research, I find, found out that Ezra Vera was the crew chief of all 9Cs. Mm -hmm. Now, there was only one 9C at a time. If that one was lost, or in the case of our plane where it got sent back, another plane took its place, and that became 9C. Because I had a gentleman uh, by the name of Russell Scott uh, that I talked to at uh, Reading. <clears throat> he was so excited that uh, my contact with the 57th Bombway Association said that he couldn't wait to see us in Reading because he wanted to show me a copy of his um, mission that he flew on. Uh, and he, Russell was quite a character, really nice guy. Uh, boy, he came running up. I hardly got out of the airplane. He was standing right there and he had all this documentation. We're talking and he looks at the plane. He goes, 9C. Well, he says, yours can't be a 9C. And I says, well, why can't it? He says, because I was aboard the 9C and we got shot down. Huh. And I said, really? 
And so he, sh he had the copies of his mission. Uh, he had run off copies for me. So I knew right away what, what the answer was going to be, but I wanted to show him. Uh, so, you know, what model were you in? He says, well, I was the tail gunner in a J. Huh. Okay, we're D. That was the J. 9C, 9C. Okay, let's keep this going. On the uh, copy of his mission, he had the dates. Well, our airplane had already left Corsica when he got shot down. And right. uh, there were only two members of his crew survived. He was one of them. But uh, oh. once we cleared that up, then he understood. But uh, it still didn't make a difference because it still was a 489 in his mind. Um, he has since passed. But uh, uh, those are the types of things, going back to what you were questioning, how do you really know what is true and what isn't true? Um, now, sometimes memory has a tendency to fade from fact, uh, and that's just part of getting old, which I can relate to. But um, So there's just ways to follow through with it. Is it accurate or isn't it accurate? That's a long answer to your question. but That's yeah, okay. So can you kind of give people an overview of where the 25 served, where it was built, kind of a service history? Sure. Um, the research shows um, that the 433634, that's the tail number, was built in Kansas City in December of 43. Now, <clears throat> when I first got the information regarding our aircraft, it's listed as a B-25D. Well, right away, I had to go figure out what is a D. Well, in doing the research, we found out by getting the books, and it shows you all the different models and C's and D's and J's and all that, and B's, um, H's, it just goes on and on. So that's why we knew it was, I knew that it was a D. So therefore, uh, let's continue then with Kansas City. The next number that came across with it, it says B25D-35-NC. Well, I had absolutely no idea what those numbers meant. So I asked the people around the museum and they, they didn't know. And, uh, so I called Kansas City and talked to them out there. There's a great bunch of people. Um, I just forget the name. I think it, it, the title of the group is B25 Project or Project B25. Hang on, rabbit trail. I found they have a website yep. where they have, yeah, I was on the other day. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah, and that's how I track my number because they had it broken down. And so therefore, I thought, well, they ought to know what's going on. So I told them who I was and how dumb I was and I needed some help with some numbers. What did the 35 mean? And what I found out was that was the contract number from the United States government to North America to contract to build 250 B-25s. The NC stood for North American contract. So that's what all that number stuff meant. And then because of that information from that website, I tracked our plane number down and ours was the 17th one built out of the 250. Now, what's interesting is that that documentation from them shows that that contract was issued to North American Aviation because they were to provide 250 B-25s to the Lend-Lease program. Now, the Lend-Lease program, as you're aware, was the program developed by the United States to provide aircraft to our allies for training, to be used as trainers, and so forth, uh, because those countries did not have 
P-25s. So that's how our aircraft started. Well, the 57th in the Mediterranean, their squadrons are being decimated because people know, all know about the European theater, but not many know about uh, the Mediterranean. And uh, it's great history about reading about the MTO. And if you do read about it, you will see why there's so many B-25s were lost because they had to fly up through the boot, boot of Italy through the Brenner Pass and the Germans had uh, anti-aircraft guns on both sides. So they had to fly through it going up and fly through it coming back. Well, they were losing so many airplanes, they needed planes. So they pulled 16 of them out and ours was one of the 16. Now, how do I know that? Because we have now have copies of the documentation and the order to pull those planes and it lists the planes by tail number and the crew that flew them over. And um, then you can track and find out that it left and went to Savannah, Georgia. Um, then it left uh, Savannah, Georgia. And they took the Southern route as you're aware down through South America to Brazil. Um, and I have uh, the breakdown of the hours of the flying and so forth, not of our plane, but it was the same route that they all took to get down there. And then they had that 1400 mile flight across the Atlantic Ocean from uh, Brazil to the Ascension Island. And uh, that was 1400 miles, that was about seven hours. Now they did put extra uh, fuel tank in the Bombay, but uh, did not really need it, but you always want fuel, you know, as the pilots say, you, the only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. Right. So it's better to have the fuel and not have to use it, not have it. So, uh, and that's a very, very small island after 1,400 miles off the coast of Africa. Mm -hmm. I think it's something like 10 miles by 12 miles or something. Yeah, it's, it's just, not big. It's just dot in the middle of nowhere. And that's what they had to find. And the interesting part, of course, is how the navigator had to get them there. Um, by reading the sun, the stars, and the moon, and, and the sextant. It's, it's unbelievable. There was no GPS. There was nothing. Yeah. See, that's the guy that I really would want on my plane is the number one out of the navigation school. I'll take pilot right. number 12, but give me number one navigator. This pilot yeah. is going to be any good if you can't get there. So then they actually wound up uh, being part of the uh, 57th was, was part of the 12th, went through at, uh, across the top of Egypt, Africa. Then they wound up on the island of Corsica in the Mediterranean. And our plane was there um, and flew its eight missions uh, April, May of 44. And then she returned. And we have all that information. Um, we have the documentation of the copy of the order ordering the plane back. Uh, we, know, we know who flew it back. Um, we know that the order said they would go to Homestead, Florida. And then that's really interesting. It says to proceed immediately to San Antonio, Texas, across the uh, Gulf of Mexico. San Antonio's uh, air base is where the planes were then um, modified. Uh, in this case, because it was a Lend-Lease aircraft, all of the military stuff was taken off. Mm -hmm. And we flew it up to Montana, and that's where the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force picked it up and flew it. Uh, they started in British Columbia, but it went across all of Canada during its life uh, as a trainer. So can we tell, 
can you tell the listeners a little bit about what type of combat missions will be flying, um, kind of like what their mission set was? Yeah, there, <clears throat> it wasn't just our aircraft. Um, as you're aware, the 57th is broken down into uh, four bomb groups. Ours was part of the 340th. Each bomb group has four bomb squads, or yeah, uh, bomb squadrons, and ours was with the 489th. Um, just the other day, I found a document that I didn't have, and I ran it off. It's 18 pages. It lists all of the four squadrons with the 330th and all of their missions. And it was really interesting to find out that the information I already had about our eight missions was supported through this documentation by date, location, and what their targets were. Now, their main targets uh, were railroad bridges, fuel depots, and close ground support. That's what they were assigned to do. Mm -hmm. So can you talk us through kind of what, um, where the eight combat missions, what they were hitting, what the targets were like, kind of that stuff, please? Yeah, um, the missions of the our, our aircraft predominantly were bridges, uh, and there was one fuel depot listed. And uh, one of the, two of the missions were the same, same location, cause that would tell me that it was a high priority target that they went back the next day and did it again, or it could possibly be that they didn't do that much damage to the bridge, so reconnaissance right. go back. Speaking of reconnaissance in the research, one of the things that I found that's in the file, and you certainly can go look at it, um, it's all listed, but the, um, what was I talking about? The camera reconnaissance something. Oh yeah, reconnaissance. I actually found the reconnaissance photos of the eight missions. And you're aware of what reconnaissance is. They would fly after the bombing mission and take pictures to see what damage was done. Right. Uh, so, and the photos actually are taken of the target and there will be little circles and X's where the bombs from our particular plane landed. So if you're doing research on another plane, the reconnaissance would show that. Um, it didn't look like they hit the bridge to me, but uh, that's probably why they went back the next day. So uh, it was really interesting to run across that document. And uh, how did you know it was? Well, it said right on there. Gave the date, it gave the squadron number, and uh, so it, it, it supported that documentation. Really no low level stuff. Um, I think they were flying somewhere around eight, 10,000 feet. Um, whereas in the Pacific, they were doing a lot of low level strafing, but at this time, this particular time, they were medium bomber. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. The last mission was interesting because on, on the documentation from North American Aviation, they claim that the max bomb load was 3,000 pounds. Because mm -hmm. people always would ask me, well, how many bombs can I carry? Well, I couldn't really right. answer because it depends what size bomb it was. Right, but I get that question a lot. People yeah. are always like, so how many bombs would you carry? Where would you put them? Yeah. You know, I can answer the last half of your question. I can point out the shackles, but I can't. You know, it yeah. depends on your mission. It depends on your... Mm-hmm. What the target is. And... Uh, the last mission, the document shows that they carried four 1,000-pound bombs. Uh, that's a big bomb. Mm -hmm. And again, see, they were doing 
bridges with um, one of the guys told me at one of the reunions that the problem they had at first was <clears throat> the smaller bombs, the 250s and so forth. Uh, they had a tendency to just go through the decking of the bridge without doing much damage. And um, then, of course, the, the Germans could repair the bridge and do it again. But with a thousand pounder, what it would do is actually uh, take out the foundation of the bridge too. So that shows that it was more than uh, what the factory said it was rated for. But as different models came out, that that also increased. But our plane it was rated at three thousand. So can you t tell us briefly about um, the training role that it carried out after its service combat time? That's probably the part of our files that there's not as much information as I would like. Uh, fortunately, we do have some documentation, but not a lot of it. Uh, the documentation we have does indicate and shows our plane with the Canadian markings and their um, numbering system. Um, it traveled across uh, all of the provinces of Canada, uh, actually spent a lot of its uh, time towards the end in Ontario um, as a trainer. And um, again, that's why all of the armament was removed, the turret, uh, the nose guns, the tail gun, and all that type of stuff, because they didn't need that because it was a trainer. Um, one of the things that was interesting, the first picture I found, <clears throat> it looked like the nose was a solid nose. Well, a closer examination, it really wasn't. What they, they did was uh, they painted the, the plexiglass because there was so much sun coming through there when they flew all day long, it just generated so much heat. And there was, of course, no bombardier sitting up there because they were just training pilots uh, and navigators. So it, uh, it, it had a glass nose. We did find the information and the pictures of it um, after they had a unfortunate landing where they claimed the nose gear collapsed and it's parks partially on the runway and off and the nose gear did collapse and there was damage to the uh, front of the aircraft, some wrinkles and so forth on it. And uh, <clears throat> when they repaired the 25, they said, hey, let's just put a solid nose on it instead of the glass nose and we don't have to paint it either. So. Um, it wound up with a solid nose. No armament, just a solid nose. Mm -hmm. And um, you've been up on top, you notice, you remember that the top used to be a white color. Mm -hmm. uh, that was done for paint reasons, again, to reflect heat, and the Canadians did that. Um, <clears throat> we know that uh, it sat idle for a while. Uh, it was purchased by a company and uh, I tried to contact that company. They're still in existence, but nobody would return my call. Um, I don't know why they purchased it. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know why. The second company that was sold to in Canada, that company is listed uh, as a charter company, but also um, fire drop. So I've got an idea that they were going to probably use that aircraft, uh, but it we had no documentation that ever was used for that. Then it was brought, bought by a private party um, and wound up in the Detroit area um, and had flown around for a while under the name of uh, the uh, county lawyer. Uh, that particular person certainly didn't represent what the plane was. 
Um, no. The, the sound that knows he put eight machine guns out the front, and there was over a hundred missions on it and all that. Yeah, if you ever if you ever look up pictures of it, there's like you know a hundred missions painted on one side, and you know. <laughs> well, that. it that brings out an important part um, that when I talked to Kevin, the executive director, I just said, Kevin, my personal feeling is this plane is so important historically that it ought to be what it is. If it had a glass nose, then it needs a glass nose. And uh, we purchased that aircraft, um, as we, the museum purchased it, and um, they did find a glass nose and installed that glass nose. Uh, they also had to find a top turret, um, and they found a top turret, and that was installed. Um, the tail gun position um, has a cone on it, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. And uh, in the recent uh, developments in the painting, by finding, uh, they found the original blueprints. You may have seen them, but the original blueprints that show that that plane did have a tail gun uh, with the little greenhouse effect or doghouse, they call it. Yeah, I have not seen that blueprint. Um, that, that to me <clears throat> was, uh, it's quite obvious to me that was removed in San Antonio, Texas. Because again, the Canadians did not need a tail gun position. So what they did was they just put that plastic dome that's on there, even though there were some D's in the theater that had that particular dome on it. Mm -hmm. and you'll see other pictures of other B-25s that have different types of tail guns. That's because um, they called it field modifications. They did a lot of modifications of these aircraft um, at these bases. And again, I think you used the term before, depending on what their targets were and what they were doing. Um, the guns uh, on our particular plane, strictly, were there for defensive purposes only. And for people don't, who don't know, um, those are the four package guns, two on each side of the fuselage. And those are actually different than the letter J models, where they have them in staggered blisters. Um, yeah, that's an, another excellent point. Uh, several years ago, um, our air show featured 25s. It probably had to be 12 years ago, whatever. And it was interesting to me that all the 25s were there. Most of them had all different armaments uh, modifications on them. Some had single uh, blister packs on the sides uh, with a, a single 50. Uh, I've seen the single on the side with two 50s. Uh, I've seen the doubles on the side, like ours. Um, I'm not sure, because I haven't talked to Kevin or seen the blueprints, I'm not sure what was original on our aircraft. Um, so, they, they were all different. Yeah, every airplane is different, as I've come to find out. And there's a lot of, like, the, the waste guns were also field mod, correct? Uh, correct. Um, ours was built without the side window guns, um, and we're not aware that, that ever had them. Uh, some did, some didn't. Uh, when you look at pictures, uh, even of the 489 different planes, some did, some didn't. Uh, ours did not. And, uh, so again, uh, getting back to the point was, my druther is that since it is, quote, a documented aircraft, 
veteran that should represent what it was. Now, some of the things we may never find out, such as the side guns. Um, we have no pictures of this aircraft at all. Um, we have pictures of the B-25 that's been reported as ours. Um, that is not a true official document. So, uh, and we're not aware that our plane ever carried a nose art or a name on it, even though um, it was presented many years as being a different aircraft with nose art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you look up, um, you just do a quick Google search of it, it's rumored to be the Ellen Anson. Um, correct. That is not, to the best of our knowledge, that is not what it flew as, correct? That, as far as we know, that is correct. Um, we know that the Ellen Anson um, was also a 9C. There were actually, uh, the documentation right now is, we know there was at least six 9Cs. Not all of them had a name. Uh, there's one document that has our tail number with the name Ellen E and Son, but that was a reproduced document, not an official document. Uh -huh. And there are no logs showing it as the Ellen E and Son. Um, so again, that's another one of those unknowns that we may, we may never know. We know where Ellen E and Son name came from. We know it was uh, Captain Charles Burnett, uh, named after his mother. Uh, the picture, aerial pictures and the ground pictures we have of the Ellen E. and son with Charles Burnett dealing um, next to it with his little dog. Uh, the research is made. The dog's name was Skipper. If you just keep digging, you'll find out the name of the dog. Uh -huh. The picture of the Ellen E. and son aerial picture was taken <clears throat> by a B-25 on a mission with the Ellen E. and son, and the picture was taken by one of the gunners in the back because Charles Burnett wanted a picture of it. And that's where you see the nose name of the LED and son. Charles Burnett was the pilot of the B-25 flying the plane that the picture was taken from. Okay. They're, they're going through the mission records, uh, it's also interesting that there's no record to show that Charles Burnett ever flew with that airplane. See, one of the advantages we have with it is only eight missions. Yeah. So once we get all the names off the eight missions, then go back and there's a document in there. Because I was curious, uh, was it always the same crew? Mm -hmm. And so there's a list there of uh, the guys that flew it more than uh, twice, uh, or more than once and twice. Uh, so it didn't have a lot of different crew members with it, especially pilots. So what do we know about the crew members that flew the airplane? Uh, there, there are none surviving. Uh, there is a list uh, of the crew members alphabetized that's in that file. And in the uh, reunion 489 uh, reunion book, uh, there's a list of all of the names. And if you track the names that we have that we know by the mission record, uh, it shows what states they were from. Um, there were actually two from Michigan of uh, this crew member. I, I, I just don't have it in front of me, but I think one of them was from Flint um, in tracking it down. Um, I tried, but uh, 
it, it, it's real difficult. Uh, sometimes uh, the closest I got once uh, or twice were obituary notices. And again, I didn't say they flew with the 489. They just said they were right. uh, Army Air Corps of the Mediterranean. So. Yeah. So while we're here, um, we might as well discuss the recent repaint project. Um, for those who don't know, basically the Kalita Charter Company up in Oscoda um, decided to donate paint like they did for the C-47 repaint project um, to try and restore it to its um, as accurate as you could get to its World War II scheme. So what were your impressions of that project? What did you think about it? Um, I've been asked that several times. Uh, got a lot of phone calls uh, from our volunteers and stuff. And it's quite obvious when you talk to them, you find out right away what their feeling is. But they, they were asking me and uh, I, I just tell them basically what I've told you all along so far. Uh, if it was going to be repainted, and that was always the term if, because it was very expensive. Uh, the last I had heard in talking um, about exploring having it painted, you're talking somewhere between seventy dollars and $80,000. Wow. So, um, yeah, you could spend $80,000 and have it painted by the museum, but you're going to get no return on that money. And again, the idea with our aircraft is to provide revenue for the museum. So we pull $80,000 out of the museum's money, and what are we going to get in return? Are we going to get more rides? I doubt it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I meant. There's no return on that money. Right. So I, I have always um, doing presentations and so forth, and in closing, simply say, you know, if there's anybody here that wants to write a check for $80,000, yeah. I'll be glad to meet with you afterwards, and uh, I'll put your name all over the airplane if you want to give me a check. Because yeah. uh, it would take somebody uh, who has a passion for B-25, or they want to have something for their legacy mm -hmm. to, to, to do that. And thankfully, um, our executive director and uh, Dave Conan, they've cultivated this relationship with Coletta Air. And um, as you're aware, the headquarters are right there at Willow Run. And then they had this huge uh, aircraft company, charter, uh, cargo, uh, 747s all over the place. I see uh, the flight tracker when I watch it, <coughs> excuse me, all of a sudden it'll, it'll show a 747 and underneath it says Coletta Air. Mm -hmm. uh, they're flying overseas and all, you know, all this sort of stuff. Uh, a lot of government uh, contracts and cargo they do. But to have them step up and paint it, um, it's just fantastic. Uh, and then again, to move forward with what they did with the research to actually find the blueprints, to find the color codes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can say camouflage, well, what does that mean? Yeah, uh, nothing. What are you talking about? What gray yeah. are you talking about? So then that way they could match it. Um, we, we're just extremely fortunate uh, to, to have that kind of support. Um, I think it looks awesome. Um, yeah. It looks like a true war group. Yeah. But I will say uh, in talking uh, with the, the members of the 57th and also uh, the documentation, there were many B-25s later on that came over strictly polished aluminum. Mm -hmm. 
that were never painted. Right, because they just wanted to get them off as fast as they could. Correct. And the other thing was that uh, as they went later on in the war, it just wasn't necessary to paint them camouflage because the uh, uh, German aircraft were really not an issue anymore, so they didn't have to right. paint them. And again, uh, time, money, mm -hmm. and plus they never expected planes to last that long anyway. Yeah. I remember <laughs> a quick story related to that was a guy was speaking about uh, with a crowd uh, that I had gathered around the plane and he was a veteran and uh, he, he was talking to them and he said something about them. You, you can always tell a B-25 pilot because he has left ear hearing loss. Right. And if he's a co-pilot, they call him, we call him uh, first officer, but uh, they'll have right ear loss. Right. The engines are right out there. And this was really early in my career with the B-25. I asked the dumb question, well, what about ear protection? Well, he looked at me like I had lost my ever-loving mind. He uh, says, yeah. this ear protection, he says, they didn't even expect you to come back from a mission. Why worry about your ears? So, yeah. And that was the truth. Yeah. They didn't have it. And mm -hmm. A lot of those guys well, you've been aboard the plane. It's completely understandable why you yeah. can't do anything. Yeah, they didn't have um, Bose ear canceling head or um, <laughs> noise canceling headsets. Uh, they didn't have a fancy headset like you got either right now. So. No, no. It's amazing. Um, the more I read and the books and um, what these guys went through, it's just, I'm telling you, it, yeah. it's just my mind. Day after day. And then to see uh, their fellow pilots and crew members be destroyed or killed or crashed or bailed out, never seen again or captured, uh, just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. So I'm um, kind of starting to wrap up here. Is there one experience or one air show that kind of sticks out in your mind? Um, that. There's just so many uh, to try to choose one. Um, uh, I, I guess there's one that I'll claim to probably have the greatest impact. Um, when I was scheduling the air shows, when we'd go someplace and we would run ads in the paper and I always used uh, my cell phone number as the contact number so mm -hmm. we could um, pre-sell rides so we'd have some idea how many flights we're gonna have. So I'm sitting in my hotel room about quarter to 10, my cell phone rang. And this female voice on the other side says, is this the number to call about the B-25? I said, yes, how can I help you? Well, she says, I have a couple questions. And I said, well, certainly. And her first question kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. She says, is this a real B-25? Well, I'm trying to think, <laughs> yeah. Whatever the twenty fives are there, are there uh -huh. But anyhow, I, you know, funny I was tired. And I said, certainly is. And I explained a little bit about the documentation. And she says, well, the, the next question I have, she says, if if I schedule a ride for my father, what happens if we can't get him to go? Do I lose my money? And I said, no. I says. 
we don't operate that way. I uh, says, if we can't fly because of weather or something happens and he becomes ill or whatever, don't worry about it. Well, she says, um, do I just give you my credit card number? I says, no. I says, all I need is your name and I'll tell you what time. And I said, the reason I do it that way is that if by chance the weather grounds us for whatever reason, I don't have to spend all my time getting your credit card number uh -huh. money to you. So she said, okay, and uh, she says, well, I'll tell you what's going on. She says, all we know is that my father flew B-25s. She says, end of story. That's all we know. We don't know where. We don't know when. All we knew that World War II, he was a B-25 pilot. He would never talk about it. And she says, we are going to try to get him to the air show tomorrow. And we have doubts whether or not we can get him there. And I thought, oh my gosh, if you have a problem getting there, what happens to getting him on the plane? But she says, uh, that's going to be the, the real issue. That's why she says, I asked you about the money. I said, well, I told you what's going to happen. Look forward to seeing you and so forth. So I think it was like the third flight that day. And, you know, we had a lot of people around, but I just happened to be standing. And I see this group of people come, like a family, mm -hmm. or probably 12, 13 people. And you could tell in the middle who was the veteran, because he was the oldest. And you could tell right away he was someplace he did not want to be. You could just read this body language, like, what, you know. And, uh, I thought, oh, this is going to go really well. Well, they hadn't even told him they had bought a flight for him. Their goal was just to get him to the air show to see the B-25. Uh -huh. So once they got there, and I, I went over and talked to them and talked to him who I was and congratulated him and thanked him for his service and all that type of stuff. And then they sprung it on him. Uh, well, Dad, we, we've got together and we've purchased a flight for you. Well, I'm telling you, if looks could kill, I thought, I think I'll just leave right now before someone gets hurt. Uh -huh. um, I think what happened was that the only reason he consented to do it is because his grandkids were there. If his grandkids hadn't been there, I don't think they could have forced him to do it. Uh -huh. So because he was a pilot, um, <clears throat> I made sure that he got up in front. You, you know the seating situation up behind right. Him the uh, flight crew. Um, I figured he deserved that. And I didn't ask him about the service or anything, where he was and so forth. And so I got him up there and they took off. Well, I didn't go on that flight. I, I fly so much on the B-25 when we go to those places, I, I like to let the other volunteers get a chance to fly on the plane. You know? So I'm out working the crowd to get more people and uh, the lady came up and said, you know, thank you. And boy, it was quite a job to get him here. He wasn't going to come. And she's going through this whole thing. And I said, well, hope it works out. And, uh, you know, and so the plane lands. And, well, you know, a taxi's in. You've been there. And they unload. And uh, they gather around and uh, present them the medallion we do for any World War two veteran that flies on our plane. And 
But one of the crew guys came over and said, Jerry, we got a problem. I said, what? Well, there's a guy on the plane who won't get off. I said, what? Yeah, he says, he's up front, he won't get out. And I wasn't even thinking, I thought, fine, I'll get him out of there. We got people waiting, you know. So I climb up and there he is. He's sitting up there all by himself. Just sobbing, tears like you can, his hands are shaking. Uh -huh. and, oh my goodness, what am I getting into here, you know? Uh -huh. my, my degree is not in psychology. And uh, so I jumped up next to him. Uh, told him who I was, and, and his hands were just shaking. But he was sweating, um, crying, and so then he started to apologize to me. I said, you got no reason to apologize. And he says, I never realized how emotional this was going to be. He says, all these years, he says, I've blocked everything out. I haven't talked to my family. I, the war was over. I didn't want anything to do with it. But he says, I got aboard this airplane. And he says, as soon as they started the engines, he says, I knew I was in trouble. He says, I decided that I can get through this. I'll just shut my eyes. And he says, so I just had my eyes shut. And he says, the smell of the inside of this airplane and then the exhaust and the fuel. And he says, my senses just opened up. And he says, so we're taxiing and they go to take off. And he says, just as they lift off, he says, I opened my eyes. And I saw the pilot with his hands on the throttles, shoving the, the balls forward. And he says, the flashbacks just started to happen. He says, I couldn't control them. He says, I could see those throttles just shake and migrate. And they do. That's why you've been up there. That's why yep. the pilot will ask you, a co-pilot, co put your hand there and help hold the throttles. They don't come back. Uh -huh. uh, and they just shake like mad. Everything does. You can't even read yeah. the gate. But anyhow, they get airborne, and so he said, I closed my eyes and thought, oh my gosh, no. And he's having all these flashbacks, and he says, I finally opened my eyes again. He said, I looked out that little window, and, uh, and I don't remember the names, but I'll just make them up. Uh, he says, I, I remember one of the missions. He said, I looked out my window, and he says, my close friend, Ralph, whoever his name was, the plane just exploded, never saw him again. And he says, I just started crying and crying. He says, another 10 minutes, I open my eyes. He says, I look over on the other side. Boom, another 25 blows up. He says, three of those I remember distinctly. And he says, it was so emotional. And he just lost complete control. And uh, his, his clothes were soaking wet. I mean, he was crying so hard. Well, I was crying as hard as he was. And my flight suit was all stained with tears and stuff. And, so he says, I just, I'm, I'm too embarrassed to get out. And I said, well, you got nothing to be embarrassed about. I said, look at me. I'm not embarrassed. I'll be glad to get out with you. So I got him out. And of course, the family gathered around. And um, it was just, it was so emotional. I, I have a hard time telling the story. Well, then without thinking, because they had already done that metal presentation. Mm -hmm. I had metal in my pocket, and so I thought, well, he deserves one too because he's World War II vet. So I did the presentation and took the metal out and put it around his neck. Well, he just broke right down again. Well, so did I, and so did the family. Here we're all standing around there blubbering like a bunch of whatever, but I wasn't embarrassed, uh, and they weren't either. So anyhow, we got them away, and the, the plate took off, and I had a chance to talk to them a little bit then. Uh, 
they were so appreciative. A lot of pictures. And, uh, I have so many pictures on file here that people send me. I don't remember who they are if they don't sign it. I feel bad about it. But I, I have a letter in my file uh, from one of the daughters that she wrote a thank you uh, for allowing him to fly. And I thought, what a strange way to word that. Um, I remember talking to her after he got off the plane and she said, you, you just don't know what this means. And I said, oh yeah, we do. That's why we do what we do. We do this to honor them. It's not us. Exactly. So she wrote this thank you and said, again, appreciate what you guys do. You don't know how important it is. And it went on to say that because of that flight, he's opened up completely. Wow. about or all of his missions unbeknownst to them he had his footlocker in the basement of his house he brought up they opened it up it had his flight jacket in it it had his log his metals wow. everything all in there and she went on to say that they meet once a month at his house, regardless of where the grandkids live or out of state or whatever, they all come in, sit around the table. And he lays out, he actually had the maps of where the wow. mission was. So now they know where he flew. And I, I just forget where it was, but uh, then he would open up and tell them all about it. So that really reinforced um, the, the hard work we do. And, and I don't say that to be critical because you do it so you know what i'm trying to say they're really long days right and, you know you're a young guy you can handle that when you get our age you know you work 14 16 hour days you're pretty whipped but when right. you have events like that happen it just recharges your batteries exactly we are doing what we're supposed to be doing and how do these men in our air at the end of the day that's what that's what it's all about you know honoring and preserving this that's what I'm trying to do here, you know, so we don't forget about it. You know, we keep it, you know, keep it fresh. Um, it certainly is important. Well, I congratulate you on what you're doing and, and the interest and the passion you have. One of the things that we know as a museum that we have to work very hard at doing is we need to get younger life into these. Mm -hmm. We need to get the young people involved. Um, I do find it really interesting when we go to these air shows, the number of young people that come with families that have an interest in propeller aircraft. You think that their interest would be jet power, but they're right. so fascinating. But, uh, well, so am I. I mean, there's not like a round engine. I mean, come on. Right. Shake, rattle, and roll. So. Well, the 25 just looks good. Like you can't beat it. Just sitting there on the tourniquet looks powerful. Well, it, um, it's just, uh, I can remember the first time I rode on it. And again, I rode on the B-25 before I came a member. Uh, but that was at uh, our, one of our air shows. Um, I remember the first time, I, I couldn't believe how much thrust there was on right. tape. You're sitting in there and they put the power to that thing. It is like, you have got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. It's just, of course, it was designed to, to do that. Get a heavy load off the ground. Right. And then when you read these different 
books that are put out about these guys that flew these things uh, in the Pacific. Oh, my gracious. It's yeah. just, oh, they're 30 feet off the water at $300 million. We're going to be whistling Dixie here. I mean, yeah. that's, not, that's not even funny. And, oh. uh, but yet the guy says to me, oh, Jerry, he says, it was so exciting. I'm going, yeah, <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah. So, uh, no, yeah. I feel you're honored and blessed to uh, have walked into this and allowed to do the things. Um, things change, uh, but change is good. And as long as we can keep the aircraft flying. And, uh, mm -hmm. and it was interesting that the B-25 really sat and was not used. So I, I, I'm proud that we got that program going and got it out there. And... Uh, and now that the C-47 is painted, I think that's going to be just dynamite because there's nothing out there with the CBI colors. Exactly. You see all the DC-3s, um, you know, they're all D-Day. You know, yeah. and that's almost exclusively D-Day, I might yeah. add. All ETO with invasion stripes. Exactly. And then to be able to cultivate the relationship with Colonel Cole uh, and then his family to be able to put the nose art of his plane. You know, it was really interesting to find out that he has more hours flying C-47s than he did B-25s. And yet yeah. he's, he's known for what? The Doolittle Raid. Yeah, I remember hearing that and go, wait, hang on a second. You know, I've heard, <laughs> you know, I, up to that point, I'd always heard of him as a B-25 pilot. And then a lot of people don't realize, you know, he went on and flew tons of missions flying over the hump in India. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of it until, you know, just before all that stuff happened. And so I was, oh, no. So I thought, okay, let me find out. Mm -hmm. It's unbelievable how many missions he flew over the home. Right. And see that, again, nobody knows CBI. If you're, if you're at an air show or something and you talk about CBI, they look at you like maybe you should go get a shot or something. They don't, they, they don't know what you're talking about. Right. I've had those um you know, the kind of the, wait, what? Looks, yep. you know. My friend, uh, I've lost him now. Uh, as his age, he, he was a decorated P-61 Black Widow pilot. And um, I did a lot of research on the P-61s and the squadrons. And there, there was a squadron in Burma. And we were up in, um, well, my God, we do so many of these. Owasso. Uh, and this guy comes up, he has an envelope, a manila envelope, and he was with the son, and I didn't know that, they introduced himself, and then he says, uh, my I brought my dad out here, um, and, and before he could continue, the guy says, well, he says, you're probably not aware, but he says, I was in the CBI, so I just responded, you know, China, Burma, yeah. You got to be kidding. Well, he was so surprised I knew anything about it. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he was a P 61 guy. Right. And so I already knew what squadron he was with. He just couldn't get over it. And uh, so, yeah, there's those parts. And even the Mediterranean is not that well known. Right. That's kind of Pacific and ETO. And that's, you know, it. Yeah. 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 Uh, they don't realize that um, 
B-25s, my gosh. B-25 served in every theater during World War II. Right. Europe, uh, Mediterranean, Africa, Indonesia, China, Burma, and all the Pacific. And that's because its role could change. They could change that airplane to, to meet different specifications. Right, it had great adaptability. Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, I read somewhere, see, I think our aircraft, the way it's set up, static, I think it weighs somewhere around 19,000, maybe a little bit more than 19,000 pounds, with about 400 gallons. Um, I, there's a mission that I saw, uh, its weight with the bomb load and everything was like 37,000 pounds. Wow. That's, that's almost doubling its weight. Well, that's because of the airframe. Just rugged aircraft. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, so kind of transitioning to the end, is there anything that I've not talked about that you'd like to cover? Um, no, uh, not really, other than the fact that uh, we've just got to keep working hard during especially these times now. Uh, Nonprofit is just paying a hard price, and uh, we just got to keep working and find ways to raise revenue to keep the museum going. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't realize how expensive aircraft are to maintain. No, they don't. Um, they just think it's like a car or something. Um, they don't realize it. Um, I think that the other thing that I would just encourage to Anybody has an interest, uh, get it a hold of the museum. It doesn't have to be the B-25. There's other things that can be done. I mean, I started out sweeping floors because that's what I wanted to do. Um, it just, you know, there's maintenance. There's yeah. whatever. And whether you want to get into uh, oral history, whether you want to get into collections, whether you want to be a docent. Right. There's just great opportunities to volunteer. Well, yeah, and a lot of people don't realize, like, so there's, you know, even the tiers of people that keep a 25 flying, there's the crew that maintains the tugs and the air stairs and the ladders and stuff like that. And then there's us, and then there's the pilots, then there's the guy who drives the fuel truck, mm -hmm. you know, that's not as applicable, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, and a lot of people, when they see, you know, warbird cancellations are like, you know, if they got canceled for an air show, they're like, why can't they come? You know, they just naturally assume you know, it's, like you said, it's just like a car, and it's really not, because these are airplanes that have been out of production for going on 80 years now. You know, so yeah. you can't you can't you can't find parts. And the it's, other hard thing is that weather plays such an important part. Right. A lot of time and energy goes into set up things, and it can just be neutralized by a single thunderstorm or a rain, and they don't realize that. Yeah, it might be nice where they are. I remember sitting at Willow Run, we were headed someplace to Indiana. We were supposed to be there at nine. We never got there till four. We couldn't, we couldn't get out of Willow Run. Mm -hmm. They kept calling, oh my gosh, it's 75 degrees here, blue sky. Yeah. yeah. Send you a picture of what we're looking at. Yeah. I went to um, Port Clinton one time. We were down there for air ventures for the day. Um, and Vaughn, um, I'm not going to say his last name because I'm recording this. But we, you know, we had to head out early because there were thunderstorms marching in. 
and even flying, you know, I was in the backseat, so flying home, I could look out the glass bubble and I could see big, you know, big thunderclouds right behind me. So <laughs> yeah, I know what you. I I've seen lightning. Yeah. Thank heavens it was far enough away, but yeah. you know. And and speaking of that, you know, we want to give credit too to the pilots. Um, right. People think that anybody can fly these things. Uh, oh, I have multi-engine rating. You know that, that that's really nice, but it doesn't mean you fly a B twenty-five. Right. Uh, we're so fortunate to have the pilots we have, and uh, and it's difficult because their schedules in the past don't always fit ours, especially if they're working. Right. And by the way, let's give kudos to Delane to be one of the only B twenty five female pilot. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's just it. It's just so unique, and um, mm -hmm. and again, the pilots we have, um, they love what they're doing. Exactly. They love to fly that bird. Yeah. I remember I asked Bill Clark once. You know, he was uh, sorry, didn't mean to use his last name. Uh, you can delete that. Um, yeah. 747's uh, international place. I think it was from uh, Detroit Metro to Singapore, I think. And I was talking to him, I don't know where we were. And when, when he retired from Delta, he had over 36,000 hours of flying. Yeah. And I said to him, Bill, what's the draw? to come back and fly a 75 plus year old airplane. And he says, he says, that's simple. He says, this is real flying. He says, all I do is push buttons on a 747. He says, all you do. He says, here, he says, you use both hands, both feet. He says, you use your butt because you, you have the sense of feeling, you know what's going on. He says, right. he says this is flying. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a labor of love for anyone. I would argue anyone who's involved on a warbird um, to keep them flying. So, yeah. go ahead. No, I just said yeah. You're correct. Mm -hmm. So, kind of transitioning to the end. Um, if you had unlimited cash, um, <laughs> a time, a time. I know, but bear with me. Um, a time travel machine and a ginormous hangar that someone else was paying the rent for um, what three planes would you go back in time or maybe forward in time to buy and why well of course uh, to have your own B-25 I mean come on yeah life, life is good uh, the choice is obvious you know Panchito's available right I saw that yeah if you want 3.2 million dollars or something I'm not sure he really wants to sell it I think it's Kind of yeah. an average thing, but a B-25 would be one of them. Um, for and, and the reason for that is uh, the important role that that played, and also it's a twin engine. It's a round engine, mm -hmm. and it's noisy as well. Uh, the other aircraft, oh God, that's hard. Only because I had an uncle that was very familiar and shared a lot of things uh, about P-38 with me. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen the aviation channel. The, the, it, it's just a marvelous airplane. Uh, it, it was so unique for the time. And um, that probably would be another one. Again, twin, but that's a fighter. Right. So 
I couldn't ever fly it. So uh, another one, only because my association um, uh, with my friend Captain Bollinger, who's passed away, uh, with P-61 Black Widow, and that's because of the history of the airplane, uh, the first aircraft frame ever built for radar purposes, and. Um, he was only one of 250 pilots trained. So it was a really a rare aircraft. Right. And there are none flying to Redding's trying to build one from scratch, or one they recovered. Uh, there's only four in existence, but there's no flying. That probably would be one. Uh, again, that's uh, actually that's a fighter, but it's a twin engine. That was very cutting edge for its time. It had the first, almost the first air to air radar. Um, remote gun tr turrets, which later appeared on the B-29. You know, very, very cutting edge. Yeah, that flew with a crew of three. And uh, they had the radar guy and uh, the, the gun turret guy. And uh, his squadron, the 422nd ETO, um, their planes did not have the top turret. They were having some aerodynamic uh, issues with it. And so they pulled it out. As you already mentioned, it was the same turret that was used to be 29. So they, they just removed it. Very fast airplane. Um, he was the only nighttime fighter pilot credited with uh, three kills and one probable in the same night. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be one. Uh, that'd be the third one. And uh, uh, everybody goes for the for the Mustang. Uh, I. I probably, my last one would probably be a Corsair. Yeah, now that's a cool airplane. Yeah, I had the privilege of sitting in the cockpit of a Corsair once. I just, I turned your one in a vapor lock. It just was unbelievable. The largest cockpit I'd ever been in. You just right. could, you, you could square dance in there because that's so much room, but it's just a huge aircraft. So yeah. I guess that, yeah, as long as I had the money to, maintain and hire people yeah. to, I'll hire you yeah okay so I don't I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up thank you for um talking to me tonight I really appreciate it well it's it's not a problem I appreciate what you do and uh, I've enjoyed uh, spending time with you and I am not the expert on our 25 I just know enough to be dangerous mm -hmm.